Hi everybody, Father Tony here, and welcome to Talk Gnosis After Dark. Jonathan Stewart is joining me as always. Hello, Jonathan. Hello, Father Salvia. Yeah, thank you. And uh, you were moving a lot more than your still picture. That's uh, that's fantastic. Um, I think that we should um, we should probably address that very soon. But before we do, let us introduce our special guest, Monsignor Jordan Stratford, who is joining us to talk about our topic tonight: alchemy and Gnosticism. Welcome back, Monsignor. Good evening, Father. Yeah, so Jonathan, is there anything you'd like to say about um, the uh, the country of Russia or anything like that? <laughs> yes. Uh, unfortunately, it didn't come out in time for our uh, conspiracy episode. <laughs> but if you do, Father, if you do Google Father uh, and spell his name wrong, you will get a very interesting article uh, on a uh, Russian propaganda website. Yes. Uh, yeah. Yes, where they're asking uh, for his uh, feedback on the uh, recent meeting between the patriarch and the, uh, the pope. So yes. I am an expert in ecumenical politics. Everybody knows. Yeah. So yeah. yeah, it is. Uh, it is. It is rather. It is rather bizarre. I don't know if it was written by a Bosch or if it was partly assembled by a bot and a human. It's it's very bizarre. Yeah, maybe like a fifty-fifty. Um, the the autocorrect on my name was definitely bot generated, but uh, no. who knows. Uh, it, the, the internet is a weird place, everybody. Try not to go there. So, uh, anyway, uh, let's, <laughs> let's move on from there and let's talk about some alchemy, shall we? Um, we, we went into the uh, video podcast, the video portion, rather, talking about what the kind of historical and current uh, definition of alchemy is and what it does and, and what we're trying to do through alchemy, when, those uh, who do alchemy. Um, but uh, let's let's skip a, ahead a little bit and let's talk about today, uh, Monsignor. Does alchemy have a role in the modern world, or is it something that is strictly uh, Middle Age and Renaissance uh, stuff? Well, I mean, certainly, I think that um, in terms of the material gains, which is was a big part of the deal. You know, you mm. know honestly, for medieval Renaissance alchemists, the, you know, the, the period of classical alchemy. Uh, what they were looking for, uh, you know, a large part of their motivation, these things would be considered to be practical or industrial chemistry contracts. So uh, a significant part of the return for them was, you know, can I do X with Y in order to make this metal stronger or to make this bell sound a certain way um, or to uh, create an effect with... Uh, uh, a piece of jewelry, which would otherwise be a whole lot more expensive, mm. and stained glass. You know, can, right? I, can I get away with exactly? You know, can I get away with something? Um, can I make something beautiful? And and um, so those material efforts, um, the the ROI on those is is clearly less. Less. We know more now, and mm -hmm. we know that there are easier ways to do, uh, you know, to get Y with X. But you know. My interest is in the history of science and the history of ideas, um, and on a very pragmatic level, when, uh, uh, on a pastoral, when I'm seeing someone who is experiencing change in their life, when someone is, uh, is going through a period of suffering, what are the alchemical processes at hand that I can understand um, what this transformation is all about? What can I understand uh, about the, the the dominant metaphors within alchemy, in order to make this easier for the person and, and ultimately for myself? So, um, 
you know, yes, Jung saw alchemy as the ligature between classical Gnosticism and his own work and, and that of his predecessors, Freud, etc. Mm-hmm. So um, for, for Jung, the alchemists were talking about uh, dreamscapes. They were talking about the compositions of uh, the human psyche. And it was one of the things that we talked about in, in the video is, is this hunger, this yearning that people have for change and that this is what unites us with the entire cosmos. And that uh, we have these three processes of you know, dismantling things into their irreducible forms. We are compositing things back into some kind of shape. We're putting those things back together. And then as soon as we do that, we observe that the, the living organism yearns to grow to change to adapt everything is seeking this this ongoing transformation and this is a universal uh impetus throughout the experiential universe you know we're all we're all seeing this so uh the the role that it has to play now um is certainly a a speculative one it is a it is one that uh is a branch of medicine uh, as it always has been. If you look at uh, Paracelsus, you look at uh, Bacon, you know, any of these um, uh, alchemical giants who've left us this, this huge corpus of material to, to look at and to play with, they were very interested in healing. You're talking about you know, one of the, the, the biggies is the elixir of life, which um, has often been understood as uh, immortality, but really it's about understanding the aspect of our existence that transcends the mortal mm-hmm. it's not necessarily about never dying it's about never ceasing to be um, and as we can see in the lab um, that the the dying is a really critical part of that mm-hmm. um, and but the interesting thing is you know what what's after that once you take something, once you take a plant apart, you you, know, you still have something left over, um, and uh, asking that question, pursuing that question of well, what what exactly is it, and how much does it weigh, and what can you do with it, and um, what is the nature of the psyche? That still resounds, and I, I think it's not just in in psychology and in personal growth. I think that there's um, a, you know, another layer. And that there's definitely a, a, a conversation in Western science right now um, that, and, and, and it's, it's suffering. We're seeing huge cultural uh, challenges on the, the, the forefront of science. One is you know, the, the overall issue of um, replicability. We used to be able to do experiments over and over again, get the same results, and this seems to be drifting. So our, our, some of our core assumptions about um, scientific method uh, are evolving in ways that you know, there, there's kind of interesting dialogue going on right now about that. But you know, the, the other is when you have a, um, a scientific culture that is only looking for a really finite answer set, and we begin to exhaust the answers that can come out of that worldview. You know, is it valuable to look at an era where we had a ghost in the machine, mm-hmm. where we assumed that there was some kind of X factor that was tying all this stuff together, um, that, uh, that there are forces 
in the universe that we have access to that we um, can measure and monitor, but maybe they have a role to play in ways that we don't necessarily expect. So even as we approach, you know, rounding up things like the standard model, um, you know, and we're seeing there are all of these forces at hand, but we're saying, you know, expect this might be really minuscule. Um, when we start to see these kind of creeping, um, sort of this aggregation of error and um, the, the ongoing introduction of uncertainty, um, maybe some of the, the players that are on the stage within the, the standard model um, are, are doing more than we first thought. So, you know, I, the contribution that alchemy has to make theoretically to modern scientific culture is that alchemy keeps things weird. <laughs> and I think that it's, it's okay um, for, uh, for, for science to admit that it's, it's weird. We live in a weird universe. Um, and there's room for creativity and imagination in science. Every um, uh, significant breakthrough in, in science, we, we, we take off our biggies. Everything from the Big Bang to the shape of DNA, these, these uh, have come through uh, in creative states, imaginative states. Uh, they've been triggered by dreams. And so that X factor of the human imagination um, has a, a very central role, not just a, a, an important role, but a central role to play in uh, contemporary scientific culture, I think. Hmm. Monsignor, um, we touched on it in the video show, but I was wondering if you could uh, get into it even more. But uh, that, as I put in our show notes, a wise man once said, if everything is Gnosticism, then nothing is Gnosticism. And I, I'm wondering if you can uh, really talk about the comparisons you see between Gnostic thought and alchemy in detail. And, and I do know, um, I was reading... That there are, you know, alchemies existed possibly pre predates Gnosticism, and different cultures are are doing alchemy around the time of the Gnostics. And scholars have actually seen alchemical metaphors in the uh, Hamadi texts because you know there's crossover between the two. So there, you know, historically, even a stodgy scholar can say that there is a connection. But I'm just wondering about some of the connections that you see. And I know you touched on it before, but if you can go into it in even more detail as we do on the podcast portion. Yes, absolutely. Um... You know, first off, uh, I, I remember who, who it was who actually said, if anything's Gnosticism, then nothing is Gnosticism. Uh, and that was not a wise man. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, I, you know, I, so we should take that one out and bury it. But, the, okay. um, you know, I think the, the point is valid that, uh, that Gnosticism is a specific uh, philosophical and literary movement that began around 200 before the Common Era um, in a specific location, this is Alexandria and a community of Hellenized Jews. So these were Greek-speaking, toga-wearing Jews. And um, you know, we're looking at people like uh, Philo of Alexandria. Um, and you know, they were not Gnostics. They oh. were Jews. But everything that we understand, um, you know, that this... Uh, this, this body of material that was created 
uh, from them and the people who sort of picked this stuff up and started arguing about it, started cranking out fanfic about it, <laughs> that's where we have Gnosticism. And you know, based on purely on their their, their soteriology, the um, the idea that salvation uh, only works once you actually understand what is going on here, and you know you have to do the algebra. You got to solve for x, but that x is unique to you. So uh, you know it's not going to be a specific ritual. It's not going to be a specific diet. It's not going to be an adherence to any uh, particular belief or. Um, uh, you don't need to. You don't need to wear a special hat as as fond as the Western uh, mystery tradition is of of uh, fancy hats. Oh yeah. Um, you know. Yeah, we're big on the hats. Mm-hmm. Very very big on hats. But um, and occasionally uh, slippers, colored footwear, also <laughs> you know through the centuries has has been something of a biggie. Um, but it's got nothing to do with that. It's just if you accept the idea that. Uh, once you have an understanding of your relationship with the divine, that is, and that this relationship is unique, uh, and that it is unprecedented, and that in order to be saved from ignorance and chaos, you need to devote yourself fully to unpacking this relationship. Right. And you know that's that's where we have Gnosticism. So everything else is is kind of a is window dressing. It's commentary, and it's it's beautiful and it's crazy. There's definitely you know some some very wackadoodle stuff in there, um, but not but alchemy is part of the mix. So you know given that we have this um, syncretic origin, so you know we have. It's ancient Egypt. You're down the block from the Temple of Isis, and you're meeting with uh, with Mordecai over you know a glass of wine, and you're going to argue Plato. Um, you know, th- these are the guys who are, are, are starting this whole thing, um, and uh, the literature that they're using to. Uh, unpack the ideas that that are, are, are coming on stream at this point. Mm-hmm. Uh, that literature is soaked in an alchemical perfume because alchemy, uh, if we look at the origin of the term alchemy, uh, means of, of, of chem or of the, the black land. So it mm-hmm. specifically means that the Nile Delta of Egypt um, in uh, early Egyptian history. The idea is if you take a shovel and if you turn over the dirt and the dirt is black, that means this is fertile soil. You can plant something here. It will grow. You will not starve to death. But mm-hmm. if you go 300 miles in either direction and you take your shovel and you turn over, and if the earth is red, you are in the desert. If you plant something here, you're all going to die. So this kind of black-red thing was very, very important. Uh-huh. So you know, just on having that understanding between the nature of the soil, this you know, you're like take soil samples. Let's let's observe. Let's run this experiment. Is rooted in. Um, the the very name of the land which spawned this idea. So it is uh, from from uh, Chem we get Chemetic, from we get Coptic, and we talk about the Copts. Um, and Coptic becomes the, uh, uh, the 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 language that's the repository for so much Gnostic for early Gnostic wisdom. And you know none of that's uh, an accident. You know, we're talking about uh, inhabiting a culture that 
uh, was looking at the world in a very specific way and was celebrating it in a very specific way or a, a set of ways um, at a time when trade was vital and there's this uh, amazing intersection of culture and um, there's this great alchemical stew bubbling away and uh, the vapors that come off that stuff are intoxicating. Mm -hmm. Perfect. Well, um, so we're talking about Gnosticism. Um, does, the, does the figure Sophia play a particular role in alchemy? Certainly, um, alchemy expresses itself. Okay, so you have these, these uh, people that are getting dirty in basements um, and inhaling stuff that <laughs> no doubt eventually kills them. You know, this, this is definitely going on. So, you know, people are dying. Okay? Yeah. Um, and they are communicating and they're recording and communicating and sharing what they know um, through uh, symbolic language. So we see uh, the sun and the moon and we see howling wolves and we see uh, a black toad and uh, we'll see a hermaphrodite or we'll see a homunculus in a jar. And you know, we have this sort of re repeating motif uh, throughout alchemical visual culture. And you know, why are we doing this? Why are we, we putting all this goop in a jar? And why are we even trying to understand who we are in the first place? A lot of that has to do with the repository of these traditions in that they, they served a purpose. And that purpose was, um, aside from you know, individual material gain or even in individual spiritual gain, it was a collective spiritual gain in pursuit of and recognition of the divine feminine. So uh, there is certainly uh, an understanding within alchemy uh, being a, a, an early natural science that um, that that uh, sexual polarity, I'm not talking about gender, but specifically sexual polarity um, is 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 critical to uh, you know we're talking birds and bees we're talking you know, very very basic stuff about uh, how nature perpetuates and communicates stuff and how itself and how um, uh, that the entire pageantry of nature is informed and, and illustrated through this this uh, sexual conversation of of uh, swapping genetics around and so. Um, it doesn't work well for any kind of a okay. So that the you know, the male plays a superior role and that the female plays a secondary role. Um, it's really easy to dismiss that because we can see that uh, you, the the need, the very basic need for um, the the feminine principle in everything and whether we're talking about you know a magnetic polarity or we're simply talking about um you know we're going to make goats there's got to be a mother goat so you know there's a very very practical stuff here um and it certainly challenges a lot of the uh, male dominant male supremacy uh social landscape of the times and certainly and you know tragically it's still a challenge to the social landscape of our time but you know that's probably for another show um but uh so the collective spiritual pursuit was definitely uh for these uh early alchemists related to the celebration of the divine feminine within they are their individual and collective 
uh, traditions. So it is those, the, it is the schools of Christianity, of Judaism, of Islam, um, with, that have a specific reverence for the divine feminine where alchemy really uh, gets some traction. Mm -hmm. So the, uh, which we talked a little bit about the physical processes and we talked a little bit about what those physical processes have to relate to our, um, you know, our, our divine essences, as it were. Is there uh, any, any effort, uh, well, not effort, is there any um, use at all to using alchemy just strictly in a symbolic sense and not, not doing any of the lab stuff at all and, and do meditation practices, things like that? Yeah, I mean, um, I don't have a lab in my basement. You know, I have one in my skull. And um, one of the most celebrated and accomplished uh, alchemists who really laid down a number of the, the rules or the dominant metaphors that later alchemists uh, revisited and were actually, you know, the idea that he was cracking open in the lab, was uh, this guy, Zosimos of Panopolis. And uh, Zosimos was uh, a, a master alchemist, and he didn't have any glassware. So uh, his laboratory was of dream. And he had a series of dreams which he recorded that dealt with his own uh, dissolution and um, kind of the, the breaking down of the aspects of his own nature and the recombination of those aspects and what they became. And then the transformation of self and uh, confrontation with different aspects of himself. And just through this series of, of recorded dreams, he had this tremendous insight into, uh, into his own nature, into the natural world itself, um, and certainly into spiritual disciplines, into spiritual practice. So uh, there is, because we have this, this gorgeous visual heritage of people that were very, very interested in, okay, you know, what happens when when you push this button and what happens when you push it in nature and what happens when you push it in the, in the human psyche. They were, you were uh, desperately curious and um, like I said, and probably, you know, half mad from huffing weird vapors. <laughs> um, but, um, you know, the, the imagery is uh, so profoundly resonant, even with modern viewers, that to look at these manuscripts and to um, to expose yourself to these manuscripts um, starts to I mean you know no no trench coat involved I mean just so just sit there look at the page um, and in the same way that that one can meditate with tarot mm -hmm. um, you can start to see the repetition of these motif and uh, start to identify with certain aspects of them um, we'll see, you'll see a swan, you'll see, um, a, a lot of alchemical imagery becomes, uh, Christianized and becomes identifiable Christian imagery that of the pelican striking its own breast to feed its young from the blood becomes, uh, a metaphor for Christ and the sacrifices of, of the blood of Christ. Um, pelicans don't actually do that, by the way, they don't actually <laughs> poke themselves in the chest to feed their babies. That would be uh, inefficient. Blood. 
Yeah, um, but yeah, you know, it's, it's a very common um, medieval motif. But yeah, it speaks to um, uh, it, it's, it speaks to a very specific alchemical operation. Um, but uh, just to look at this stuff and kind of see what starts happening with your brain, um, how much of our culture, how much of this symbolic language has been embedded in our culture that we can access it simply by participating visually into the art mm-hmm. and um and and then observing so just by handling these manuscripts and you know i in the very early days of the internet uh before the introduction of the web even there were archives of uh, scan materials when scanners became um, pretty available in universities um, and research students started grabbing the stuff off the shelves <laughs> scanning pages um, and uploading them to archives where you could just thumb through this stuff for the first time and, and look at primary source text and uh, this was a really exciting time for amateur scholarship because you know, nobody, there was a, a disintermediation. Nobody was standing between you and the text telling you what it meant. You could just try to read this stuff and you could be as confused and baffled as anybody else. <laughs> um, so I just started taking notes. It's like, okay, I don't know what this is, but I keep seeing the symbol and what is it? And then there would be an explanation of the symbol. And then somebody else would say that, that information was incorrect. <laughs> um, as, as you know, you know, it's the yeah. moving, the moving target of scholarship is you could, you really can understand something temporarily. Um, but it becomes disposable and scaffolding, and so it's the process itself. It's, it's, it's the it's the journey um, through that information. Which, it, wow, isn't that being in the lab? Isn't that being yourself um, being distilled and purified um, through your own learning process? So I find that tremendously exciting and tremendously liberating. Um, and uh, so I kept this uh, aggregate notebook where once I would see a term and I would try to find that term or I'd find a symbol and I, this one symbol would most of the time mean X and sometimes mean Y. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, one of the realities is that by the time that we get into the later Middle Ages and the Renaissance, the alchemist becomes a job. Um, we're talking about uh, individuals that are vying for industrial chemistry contracts and these this is their secret recipe this is the stuff that keeps a roof over their head they know how to do it and if they lose their intellectual property um they will either be out of a job or someone will will compete and improve on it so um these uh this imagery was used as much for obfuscation as it was for illustration Mm -hmm. and that's a really different dynamic than i think in in any other form of western art so you know we specifically don't want you to know what this means Mm -hmm. i'm trying to throw you off here um whereas you look at uh, you know religious art it's very instructive it's very illustrative here is a biblical scene uh here's the rolling away of the stone because i want you to know that if we do this and this happened and this happened in this order and these are the people on the side and this is the expression on their faces because i'm trying to communicate this event and the spiritual reality that 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 has a weight to this culture this tradition this, uh, this time of year associated with the scene the alchemists were doing in many cases the exact opposite i want you to think i'm working with substance a and i'm really working with substance b and if you get this wrong if you just crack this open and go oh that's the symbol for substance a and you grab some of that your lab explodes 
Um, and you start to see that, and you know these uh, these individuals, um, men and women from Arabic cultures, from uh, from Greece, from Western Europe, from Northern Europe, bringing their own sense of inquiry, bringing their own sense of humor into the mix um, you know, really come, becomes quite charming. You become very, uh, it's like lurking on a, a message board from <laughs> a, a thousand years ago. Um, and you, the, the personalities emerge and their agendas emerge. Um, their, their weaknesses and their fears emerge. And um, you know, that in itself is, is really quite lovely. Their voices become uh revivified and mm. present and you know they're still flawed and human and they're just in the lap they're learning um and they're screwing up and they're making mistakes and they're getting angry at themselves for their their failure to advance on uh, uh on a, a schedule that that they have stuck in their head so they're making all the same mistakes and experiencing all the same flaws that that we are um there's um, uh, one of the most famous uh, medieval alchemists was uh, Nicolas Flamel and his wife Perronel. And um, uh, Flamel traveled to access this document, these tablets, that would teach him this operation. He eventually became uh, possessed of this information, recreated this experiment, had success, and now had a mechanism by which he could turn it into gold. Um, and we have it as a point of history that suddenly here was this guy who was effectively broke, was cranking out very large sums of money um, and was very, very wealthy and put it all into philanthropic endeavors, built several hospitals, built several orphanages, um, uh, cleaned up Paris's water supply. Um, and, you know, and we know that this guy actually had a lot of money and gave it away though that that's, that's a historical fact mm-hmm. um the records of the time say he got this because he was a gold manufacturer and he used alchemy to crank out all this gold and so the money is real the the good works are real um and you know so there's a real dialogue that he was having with his city and with his society at the time and um, I was in Paris several years ago, and I uh, was at the, the Cluny, which is the, um, uh, I call it the leftover museum. It's kind of, the, see, we, we don't have any space for this here, so we, we move it out there. Uh, so it was kind of the attic of, of every medievalist. <laughs> and, um, you know, and it's all of these marvelous bits and pieces. And Flamel's uh, own gravestone, when he died, um, went missing for centuries. It was stolen people assumed they would have alchemical or magical powers mm-hmm. um you know after he died his house was sacked people were looking for uh for for the secret and so there was an assumption that somehow encoded into his gravestone um there would be this uh, uh this magical formula that would also make you rich and so it was missing for a long time it actually wound up at, at some chateau and it was the reverse side it was being used as a cutting board for centuries <laughs> and so it was kind of pried up and on the other side it was like oh god this is okay here's this this, this guy he had a christian burial and uh, we should probably stop chopping onions on this guy's <laughs> tombstone and eventually it, it wound its way to the kidney as so many um 
things do. And so, you know, um, and you can get right up to the stuff. It's not behind glass. And, um, you know, so there I'm nose to nose with, uh, so I'm looking for it too. You know, I'm looking for the great alchemical secret. I know, you know where's, where, Where's the where's the dragon? Where's the toad? Where's the hermaphrodite? Where's the homunculus in a jar? And no, it's just the sun and the moon and the, the risen body on Judgment Day. It's a, it's a very simple uh, medieval confession of faith of uh, a, a man who is convinced that he and his wife are going to be bodily resurrected in at, at the end of days. Um, and it's you know it's it's very sweet and it's very simple. And it's a, a straight. He designed it himself. We know that much, and um, it's a simple declaration of his faith, which I, you know, I think that really speaks to the work in his life. That when he had all this money, you know, he didn't build himself a palace. Mm-hmm. Uh, he built a bunch of hospitals. He he built. He fed a bunch of orphans. Um, yeah, he he put in some plumbing. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, yeah, but the. There, there's this expectation, and we, we we burden the art and the representation of alchemy um, with this desire, with our own desire for transformation. We want it to be transformative, and in so many ways, it is transformative. Um, but there's a, there's a degree of caution there that it's you know, this is not um, uh, it, it's not all straightforward as that. You know, this is a, a long process that changed the people who were looking at this information, who were working with this material, who were attempting to, uh, to make all this stuff happen. And by the time this gets into the 20th century, it gets very, very strange what some people were trying to do specifically with with spirits, with with plant alchemy, mm-hmm. um, including the idea that if you you know if you if you talked to your lawn, if you the you know grass would be informed with certain ideas, and then if you you know made tea out of this grass or whatever, um, that it could have curative powers. Um, you looking at this, this, the same idea that, uh, you know, the water or the water crystals will somehow magically form in a different shape. Mm-hmm. Um, if you, if you, if you yell at them, but you know, that's, um, and, you know, mysteriously we have these different crystal shapes, but, you know, based on, you know, the, the mood that people are, that's called Photoshop is, <laughs> is, is how you get that. Uh, the the so, premier alchemical tool of the 21st century, Photoshop. Yeah, it's, it's, it's Photoshop. <laughs> but, you know, so why why do we have this fascination? You know, why, why do people have this idea that you, know, you could sort of yell at nature and make it do what you want? <laughs> um, I think it's the yearning for our, our, our connection. I don't think it's entirely misguided. Um, and, you know, it, it's understandable, but I think that it's it's very human to expect too much out of it. Um, as opposed to instead of expecting these transformations to happen on an, in a convenient human time frame. But if we're talking about mechanisms of nature, which are literally evolutionary, that we need to kind of chill out a little bit and, and let some of these things happen over an evolutionary scale. Mm-hmm. The uh, <laughs> I, I wanted to... Uh, Piggyback off of what something you said a little bit earlier, where you talked about the um, the, the the practice of, of alchemy without the lab. Um, that you, you're talking about using those alchemical plates as kind of meditation focuses and things like that. Um, would would a, a person who is interested in this stuff find any uh, 
any parallels with the work of Jung and would like some kind of Jungian psychoanalysis be, be helpful in an alchemical sense? Yeah, Jung um, was my introduction to the alchemists. Um, you know, I, I identified with uh, the early Gnostics very early on and um, was looking for some kind of magical survival of, you know, here's, here's this tradition um, from the crossroads of civilization going back 2,200 years ago. And, you know, where are these guys? I want to talk to them. I have 100 mm -hmm. questions and, you know, I want to pin them down. And, you know, every, every little side street that I walked down, there was never any kind of Gnostic church that I could walk in and, 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 uh, <laughs> and ask questions of. So, um, and reading Jung and reading Dick, so reading you know, modern Gnostics and, and what their experiences were and how they were um, unpacking their own uh, process and, and seeing um, resonance within uh, Gnosticism within, between their own experiences. Um, it was Jung who, it, you know, it really bothered him that the, that Gnosticism seemed to you know, there's this, this hole in history mm -hmm. where where the, the the Gnostics were and then they weren't again. Um, and while some in the pre-Messina age assumed there was you know there must have been some kind of pogrom, there must have you know been you know, round up all the Gnostics and kill them. <laughs> um, and you know that 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 didn't happen. Um, you know, Gnostic ideas simply fell out of favor. They mm -hmm. were, you know, they were not competitive. Um, it's too much work. <laughs> Tell um, me about it. And uh, yeah, yeah, it's the kind of pray and obey thing is is uh, is very comforting. It's much more accessible. Mm -hmm. um, and you 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 don't really need to seek enlightenment. You can just kind of if you sign here, if you kind of click on the end user license agreement, mm -hmm. I agree, and you know then you're good. Um, that is a lot easier than kind of having to draft your own terms and conditions. So, um, uh, but there was definitely this Gnosticism shaped hole in history, and it drove Jung nuts until he had um, this this understanding that the bridge between classical Gnosticism and uh, contemporary psychology and psychoanalysis was alchemy. So it didn't go away. Um, and didn't even really change much at all. We just, in a process of, of retrospection, have said these guys are the Gnostics and these guys are the alchemists, and that somehow that they're 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 different. There's a different gang, mm. and um, you know the women and men that were engaged in Gnostic work were part of the same philosophical and literary tradition that the women and men who were engaged in alchemical work. Uh, so there is a, a, a continuity between um, these two movements, and they are, in fact, uh, inseparable. Mm -hmm. And that we still have within the, the roots of the early modern period, we have people like Newton who considered themselves to be alchemists. Mm -hmm. So you know, that becomes really interesting now there's a handle on the hammer that we can pick up and start swinging around so the the, the gnostics are not relegated to the hoary halls of history they're not stuck in uh a jar buried in the desert um the gnostics have always been with us 
and you know where they've been in they've been in the basement huffing fumes sure <laughs> but you know they, they they didn't go away and um and in some cases like in uh flamel's case um they were building hospitals and orphanages and and getting clean drinking water around paris mm -hmm. so what did young do with that did he incorporate that into his own work yeah, and you can certainly see a lot of alchemical symbolism and alchemical references in, in the Red Book. Um, uh, he wrote a book called Alchemical Symbols, um, and, uh, and he looked at, at, at Chinese alchemy as well. He saw um, alchemy as the uh, cultural bridge not only between uh, the, our current period, or his period of the early mid-20th century, and that of the classical period. But he also saw it as a bridge between East and West. And he uh, understood that um, the, the trade of alchemical information and alchemical materials uh, along the Silk Road informed Western philosophy and psychology and culture in the same way that it informed um, specifically Chinese uh, philosophy and culture. That's mm -hmm. a, uh, an area of study that is way outside of my wheelhouse. Mm -hmm. Um, so aside from having read what Jung said, I really can't speak to it, mm -hmm. but you know, it was a, important for him that, um, the Western mind and the Eastern mind as, as it's been, we've been calling it since the early, uh, uh, early colonial contact period, um, that this Eastern and Western division is in fact artificial, um, and that there are common grounds of uh, experience and symbolic language and uh, psychological constructs, and that uh, there's an archetypal resonance east and west, um, and the all of those ligatures, all of those commonalities, are uh, reflected in alchemy and in in uh, the alchemical pursuit. Mm -hmm. I find that uh, there are a, a number of places where I see uh, alchemical symbols popping up, um, and I find I find the places where it pops up to be interesting. I mean, I, I think that nobody would be awfully surprised when I say that there's uh, alchemical symbolism in the the mass of the Apostolic Joannite Church. You know, we we certainly draw on that tradition, but. Um, at the risk of alienating uh, some of our audience, I, I think Freemasonry is a place where a lot of those alchemical symbols kind of washed up. And I think that a lot of the, the Freemasons today don't even know what they've got when they see a lot of those symbols, but they perpetuate them, and, and I think that's important. Um, do, do you have any thoughts on uh, Freemasonry and, and other esoteric traditions that perpetuate alchemy today? Well, um, certainly a shout out to all of my brethren out there. Uh, <laughs> Uh, yeah, I myself am a Mason. Um, I find that, uh, yeah, Masonry has preserved a lot of uh, these really interesting ideas from antiquity um, without necessarily understanding what, what you have, and I think that's okay. Um, the same way that we have uh, uh, specimens that have been trapped for millions of years in, in amber mm -hmm. and the amber itself is beautiful and is is preservative and freemasonry has certainly solved that role 
in many symbols and words and fragments of antiquity. So, um, you know, that doesn't mean that uh, old Fred, who's 75, who um, raises you uh, as a Mason, necessarily has a, a encyclopedic understanding of every symbol in the room uh, or, and its origins. And, you know, the, probably the closest that he could do is pull Massey off the shelf and point to uh, mm-hmm. uh, Massey and say, this is what Massey says. Um, and, of course, Massey was limited by the archaeological framework that he was working in at the time. So, um, but certainly when we have these lodges again in the, in the early modern period, um, that you know, somebody's trying to organize this information. Uh, we we have all these independent scholars, and uh, again, they were they were more competitive than they were collaborative. And when we see um, the Rosenberg Christian Manifesto, for example, mm-hmm. it says, "Look, you know, we have got to, for the sake of medicine, for the sake of science, for the sake of civilization, we all know all this stuff in our separate labs, and we need to start collaborating. We need to actually have a collegiate structure." We need to be colleagues, and we need to form colleges. Mm-hmm. And what those colleges were initially, they were Masonic lodges. And these people that were working with architecture, and they were working with uh, uh, mathematics and engineering, and that really kind of became the dominant metaphor that glued it all together. Um, but the next crop of people that to come in were uh, physicians. And that meant uh, botany, and that meant uh, medicine, plants, and um, for a lot of them, the, the uh, uh, it also meant astronomy in the form of astrology uh, to see if it made it to make, made a difference. Mm-hmm. Now, you know, looking at, I, I'd say personally, when I look through the lens of seeing what these these people were working with um you know did astrology play a factor it was obviously very important to them at the time to uh record the astrological information um was that beneficial i i don't think so i think in the end it was it was a working theory and just like a lot of things in science didn't work out and it's sort of you know we, we can we can move on certainly the symbolism mm-hmm. of astrology is um, because you know, we're talking about a very ancient visual tradition, um, is co-opted and integrated and thoroughly informs alchemical art and symbolism. Um, but in terms of the uh, in terms of the science, so again, on the ROI, you take that stuff into the lab and you don't necessarily get all that far. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, doing the stuff on a Tuesday under Mercury. Um, as opposed to doing it, you know, in on Friday under Venus doesn't necessarily give you a specific lift in the flexibility of the metal that you're working with or the potency of the concoction or, or whatever. Mm. Um, you know, I, I, certainly botanically, um, we have, uh, uh, there are lunar plants that have different uh, chemistry depending on the uh, the phases of the moon. Mm-hmm. So you know, it, so it was a it was a, a rational theory to embark on, but I just don't think it necessarily yielded the kind of results that they were looking for. Yeah, and that's okay because you know science is about making mistakes, and so is spiritual work. I think that's really really important. Um, you know, we it, it's it's totally okay for us to if we're leading a, you know, a, a contemplative practice, a meditative practice. 
a ritual practice um, in order to understand ourselves better, our uh, our intimate relationship with the divine better. You know, we're going to screw up. We're going to reach conclusions that are going to be completely false. Mm-hmm. And that's okay because we're in the lab taking notes. You know, don't be so attached to the individual experiment. Let's look overall at you know how's the lab doing mm-hmm. by the end of the year. Mm-hmm. Um, you know what? Uh, um, uh, how's how are all of the experiments going as opposed to one specific little jar that's bubbling away in the corner? Yeah, what is it they say in, in uh, ritual magic circles? Uh, you know, lustral results will cause a you know cause your results to backfire or something to that effect. So, who knows? Yeah, it's about um, reading too much into um, in, into what's in front of you, and that's just a very it's a very human thing. You know, we're always looking for breakthroughs, we're looking for urethras, whereas actual spiritual practice is boring. Actual science is boring. Um, you know, you have to kind of stay there and, and, and be comfortable with the fact that you know um, if you're it's it's the most normal thing in the world while you are meditating on the immensities of the universe for your butt to fall asleep and for your nose to get itchy and for you to get bored. Um, that's okay. It really is okay. Yeah, the only way would, to fail at spiritual practice is to not start. So that's right, or to or you know, or to quit. Yeah. Um, um, because we keep going back to that universal constant of everything that is alive changes, and it yearns to grow. It yearns to change. The everything wants to transform from its previous state into its next state. Mm-hmm. That's who we are. That's great stuff, Jonathan. Did uh, did we miss anything? Are we, are we... I think we got through uh, our our notes fairly well, and we actually covered literally thousands of years of material. Yeah, um, no problem. It's, uh, yeah, it's uh, it, it's uh, it's been uh, pretty informative, and I actually uh, learned quite a bit. Um, just uh, I came onto the internet a little bit later than you, Monsignor, but I just remember the, you know the early days of the net and Adam McLean's Alchemy Library, and just being grabbed by the mm-hmm. symbolism and just flipping through it. You know, uh, yeah. just being hypnotized by it and not not having a clue what any of it means, <laughs> and I still I still don't. But it's uh, I've I've learned a lot tonight. <laughs> yeah, excellent. And you know, as I said, a lot of it is is there to, not to clarify but to occlude. Mm-hmm. Yes, it's supposed to throw you off, yeah. and that's you know, it's the it's it's kind of the Sunday Times crossword kind of uh, appeal to the. Hmm, I wonder how far I can push this particular problem. <laughs> So uh, before we wrap up, I did want to take kind of a hard left turn here because we haven't had you on the show since um, since your uh, young adult novel series has come out. Can mm. we talk about that for a minute? So, yeah, the, the Wollstonecraft Detective Agency. Tell us what that yeah. is. Yeah. Um, again, having this lifelong interest in the history of ideas and the history of science, um, two figures have always really been you know, very prominent uh, furniture in my imagination. Um, one being uh, Ada Byron, uh, Ada Lovelace, who is widely credited with being the world's first computer programmer, and Mary Shelley, who's the world's first science fiction author in English. And um, f- when my daughter was very young, um, I wanted to uh, inspire her with a love uh, of imagination and of science and invention. And um, was pointing her to these you know, fantastic real-world role models. And you know, one of the things that's extraordinary about both of these young women 
and the beginning of the 19th century, is that they made their contributions as young women. So um, Lovelace was making was taking the algorithms that would uh, drive the first mechanical computer uh, as a teenager. Mary Shelley wrote Frankenstein when she was 16. It was published when she was 17. Um, you know, they were not waiting to finish their PhD. They were not waiting for their first round of venture capital financing. You know, they just jumped in and made stuff because they wanted to, because they were hungry for it. Um, so the same uh, curiosity that I have about the origins of Gnosticism and the origins of of alchemy, um, this this is still early science. People are still trying to figure out what's going on uh, within themselves and within the universe. And the, the power of symbol and myth and imagination that Mary Shelley brings to the table. I always wanted to put these two characters together and just to see what would happen. And um, by uh, doing a little bit of uh, anachronism, uh, or taking the timeline and hitting it with a hammer, um, I, I put the two of them together uh, at the ages of 11 and 14 in 1826 London, uh, which in itself is a, a character in the series. And um, these, the two girls get together and they form a detective agency to fight crime. Um, but really what they're doing is they're solving problems with, with different modalities. So Ada is very uh, linear and analytical and uh, she's very good with, uh, with detail and fact. And it's Mary Shelley who is very uh, imaginative and, you know, capital R romantic, um, who kind of fills in the blanks. She's very good at reading people and understanding motivation. And uh, so it's how these two um, modalities, these two worldviews can, can collaborate and reach a kind of mutually satisfying conclusion in terms of the puzzles that are in front of them. Yeah, and uh, I, I, I have heard and read a lot of very positive reviews of, uh, of these books, and I'm, I'm glad that I could be a small part of that as well with the Kickstarter. It was you, you absolutely were. You, in fact, you were uh, backer number one for, <laughs> for the Kickstarter that we did back in 2002 yeah. that, that launched this, uh, this process. And... Um, uh, since then, um, the first book came out of hardcover in January of last year in 2015 and, uh, sold very well internationally. And book two came out last week. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, again, a hardcover, the first book came out in paperback. Uh, it's also available in audiobook. This year we're going to see Turkish, German, and Russian language translations, wow. uh, in the market. Um, I should be getting the copy edits for book three back real soon now. And um, I'm just on the home stretch of uh, writing book four. Hmm. That's fantastic. Uh, if I could put in a little plug for uh, the Mechanicals series as well, I, I really enjoyed that, uh, the Mechanicals, and uh, I'd love to see more of that universe as well, you know, when you get some time. Yeah, when I have some time. Yeah, um, the, um, you know, the Mechanicals was a really interesting experiment. It was a, a, was a steampunk version of the Crimean War. I wanted to do the charge of the Light Brigade, but instead of horses, I wanted to use giant robots. Mm -hmm. um, you know, as a result, the war is over a lot sooner. <laughs> giant and robots like, will do that. So I was like, okay, that's <laughs> it. Okay, then it's over. Um, charge, and we're done. And... Um, uh, so, you know, mechanical speaks to not only the giant robots um, that are theoretically possible in using 1850s technology, but um, 
uh, a, a mechanical was used as a, as a term for an actor who would usually represent a, pr- a prop in Shakespearean times. Mm. And um, so they're, they become almost like game pieces. So it's how the, um, the, the, the state actors uh, and the, the, the soldiers uh, of the Crimean War were really used um, as, as pawns for a, a larger political purpose that didn't necessarily serve their best interests or even the, the, the best interests of their, their home nations. Mm-hmm. And uh, so it kind of becomes uh, a, a bit of a metaphor for our time, but uh, really fun characters to, to play with. There are a lot of historical, I mean, Tolstoy is in there and Emperor Norton is in there and Colt is in there. So um, Florence Nightingale, there's a, a, you know, a whole bunch of people kicking around in there. Yeah. Good stuff. Well, congratulations on all your success with those uh, with the books. It's thank you very much. Yeah, it's very nice to very nice to know talented people. <laughs> <laughs> At any rate, so uh, next week we have coming up. Um, oh, I lost my notes because the internet is. Jonathan, what's next week? Uh, it's uh, Deacon Michael Strojan, and uh, he's going to be doing part two of his series on ancient Christian magic. So last time he did sort of the origins of Christianity, those early that first three or four hundred years and uh, next he's going to do well it's gonna be he's gonna cover about a thousand years so uh, yeah. we'll look for the to the dark ages and the Renaissance uh, and the early Middle Ages so it should be should be a lot of fun fantastic and uh, and everybody seems to like when uh, Deacon Stroyan comes on the show so uh, here we go here's some more of him anyway uh, <laughs> thank you once again Monsignor Stratford for joining us and uh, we will post links to um, books and things that you do all over our show notes so people can buy them and find all about you on the internet so thanks once again thank Thank you very much father all right and for those of you who are listening along at home we will see you next week this has been a production of the gnostic wisdom network for more information about this and all of gwn's programming please visit gnosticwisdom.net the opinions expressed in this show do not necessarily reflect the opinions of gwn the Apostolic Joannite Church, or any other organization. This has been released under a Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 4.0 International License and is brought to you by the generous support of our patrons. To support our programs and become a patron, please visit patreon.com slash gnostic. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash g-n-o-s-t-i-c.